This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Even in talking to offenders sitting, which is really the genesis for this, sitting back and realizing this isn't about what I want or what I feel. It's about what this person needs to experience so they can align sharing what I need them to share with their self-image. They can feel okay. They don't feel judged. They don't feel demeaned. They can feel like it's their idea. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. I am delighted to bring this week's guest to you. I just found his work fascinating. I am learning so much. I can't wait to get into our conversation. I've got some questions uh, that I know that you'll be uh, interested in learning just along, right along with me as I am. So our guest today is Michael Reddington, and he is, I did not know this was a thing, but it is, a certified forensic interview, and we're going to find out what that means. But So Michael's traveled the world for many years conducting interrogations and teaching professional investigators how to obtain the truth with non-confrontational techniques. So his experience in the interrogation room opened his eyes to the strategic ethical observation persuasion techniques necessary to influence people to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances. Sounds like a skill that leaders might benefit from. And today he coaches leaders working to build valuable relationships and affect more positive results. Certainly with ethical, disciplined listening, that is the name of his book, The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. Michael, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. David, thank you for having me here. Uh, so excited for this conversation. I am uh I know I'm going to learn. I, being a better listener is one of these things that I don't know that we can ever stop learning, but you've got so much to teach us today. So uh, we're going to dive into that. But I want to, before we get into the book and disciplined listening, I'd like to ask you if you could take us back as far back as you want to, to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. It's actually, the story has a funny ending. I guess it depends on what we think is a leader, right? Is that somebody up front leading the charge or somebody that behind influencing the scenes? You know, is, is a guy I used to work with used to like to say, I'm the guy behind the guy. You know, there's there's lots of ways to, to, to be leaders. But if when you said way back, that gets me thinking, like, can I find something unique, something that I've definitely never talked about publicly before? And it's going to it's actually a little bit of embarrassing to tell a story, but it probably shouldn't be. So growing up in New Hampshire, of all places, I played sports, probably like a lot of people did. So I played baseball and football, particularly. And one year when I was playing Pop Warner football, um, I, would, I was in middle school. So sixth grade probably would be my guess. We had a really big game coming up against the best team in our division, and they played in a minor league baseball stadium. So it was like playing in a stadium for us little kids and stuff like that. And I had just done a project because, you know, for school, why would I do anything academic related as a kid? I'd done a project writing about Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. So to like 
help get our team pumped up after a practice that didn't go so well as a sixth grader. I gave this speech to the whole team based on this report that I had just written on Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. So I do recall that after that, my coach pulled me aside with my parents and told me that you know he was impressed, whatever, and that I would be captain that week, yada, yada. So while all of that sounds like a, a bragging story, and here I am, this young, inspiring, motivational athlete. Yeah, I got thrown out of that game on the third play. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, yes. One of the like all-time most embarrassing, worst moments for my family and I, athletically related. But yeah, it was a big game. Like My f- grandparents and aunts and uncles were there and whatnot. And honestly, I was for, I'm too far into the story not to tell it now. But I, I played tight end, and the defensive end in front had punched me a few times on the first couple of plays. And so such is life. I got caught retaliating and I'm not excusing my behavior or saying like it was the other kid's fault, not mine. I fully retaliated in a way that made it obvious I was retaliating (laughs) for any referee to see. And I got caught and ejected from a pop Warner football game. So that story takes a quick turn, but I, I would say that's probably among the earliest that I could potentially remember. Oh, wow. That is fantastic. I just, I love those moments. You know, there's so often that, that age and that, 10 to 12 age range where we just have these moments of, of brilliance and future insight and you're trying to rally the, the team. I just love that. And yeah, they only catch this. They only catch the second person every time, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many hundreds of times I'm going to have to tell my son that because my dad had to tell me hundreds of times and clearly I didn't listen fast enough. Well, it, you know, it, it's interesting because, uh, and we're going to get into this, but from a leadership perspective and a listening perspective, the way that you have channeled that principle comes out in so many different aspects. So we're going to get into this. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything because we're going to build up to it, but there's some fantastic elements of of the principles there that we're talking about. So, okay. You're a certified forensic investigator. Why don't we just at the big picture, what is that? So a certified forensic interviewer would be like a certified public public accountant. So it's, it's a designation. So in order to earn that designation, a professional investigator has to meet the prerequisites pass a rigorous exam, and then maintain the re-education requirements moving forward. So it's a professional designation. To oversummarize, the goal of the Certified Forensic Interviewer Program is to designate interviewers who have substantiated a level of expertise that means they should be able to be blindfolded and dropped into any investigation and conduct a morally, legally, and ethically successful interview that is focused on obtaining the truth. And so often, and I'm, I'm summarizing many of the stories, that, and, th- and there, there are so many fantastic stories to demonstrate and illustrate the, the various points that you share with us. But uh, if I'm summarizing, what I understand is that frequently your situation with the interviews that you're doing is you're trying to get the truth from somebody who has reasons not to share it, who you have a limited amount of time with, like 60 minutes, and they can probably get up and leave if they want to. Definitely. They can definitely get up and leave. So here in the United States anyway, or even globally, anybody that's watched at least one Hollywood movie is familiar with Miranda rights. You, know, you have the right to remain silent. 
Miranda rights are really only administered in, in a public setting. So if somebody's interacting with law enforcement, the majority of the interviewing that my former teammates and I did was in the private sector. We did some in the public sector as well. We certainly trained many of them. More, more often than not, when we got called in, it was in the private sector. So in the private sector, those were non-custodial interviews. Nobody had been Mirandized. Nobody had been arrested or read their rights. Everybody was free to get up and go anytime they wanted. So to make sure we stayed within a fairly ambiguous set of standards set by the Supreme Court. We operated under the assumption that we had roughly 60 minutes, give or take, to get the first admission of, I use the term wrongdoing for lack of a better word at the moment. And then considering the totality of circumstances, a reasonable amount of time after. But that's because we were generally operating cases with multiple suspects, no evidence. Everybody had already been interviewed once. The case had been lingering for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. So we went in really balancing priorities. Priority number one, obtain the truth. Priority number two, protect the organization who's hiring us. That's not creating legal exposure. Protect our own organization. That's creating legal exposure for us, as well as making sure that everybody we spoke with was treated respectfully and fairly and with empathy. People are often surprised to hear that my former teammates and I were quite often asked to use investigative interviews as a morale boosting tool. Really? It sounds off the wall, but if you think about it, if we have, let's say, a team of 10 people within an organization that they know they've been under investigation for three months, morale is down within their team and outside of their team. Because for the ease of conversation, the nine innocent people are sick and tired of it. Mm. (laughs) They're sick and tired of the suspicion, the stress, the cloud hanging over them. They want their names cleared. They want the company to step up and say, we've taken care of this. They want that big exhale at the end. And of course, the person who's responsible for all of this in this fictitious example is not only bearing the emotional burden potentially of what they've done, but what they're putting everybody out Else through as well. So we literally had the opportunity to come in and conduct these conversations in a way where when all goes to plan, we identify the one person responsible so they can be removed from the situation, but do so in a way that all nine other people actually feel appreciated, respected, and relieved with how it was handled and the way it was done. Appreciate you sharing that uh, framework and baseline for us because you know, obviously, uh, on this show, we're focused on human-centered leadership skills and, and practical techniques. And so I'm, I'm curious what led you from that work? Because most of us, I mean, occasionally as a leader, we might be called, I know I, I was in my career, occasionally called on to investigate or ask questions and, and find out those kinds of things. But we're, it's not, that's not the playing field for most of us. It's the day-to-day influence, listening, getting things done, building the relationships, all of that. And all of that is in your book, The Disciplined Listener. So what led you to take your expertise and then put it together in this way that makes it accessible and useful for so many of us? I appreciate you asking the, believe it or not, the condensed answer to that is I was, it started with, I was teaching a two-day interview and interrogation course, and there was a CEO attending because he had experienced some fraud previously in his organization. So he wanted a new skill set. Uh, His name is Joe. He's since become a great friend and a mentor to me. After that session, when I was packing up my gear, he came up and said, can I buy you a beer? 
And I don't recall often saying no to that question. So he and I sat down together at the hotel and he explained to me what he took from it and how he was applying the lessons I was teaching, not just to investigations, but to his role as a CEO and asked if I could create programs for a CEO peer group he was a part of. So of course I said, yes, woke up the next morning and thought, okay, well, how am I going to do that? And ended up building a three-day training program that was essentially interrogation for executives. And when we talk about perspective, I felt like I delivered an executive communication program. The feedback I got was that I delivered a fantastic program that was all about interview and interrogation. And while they found it interesting, you know, they probably wouldn't do much of that. So thankfully, they said, here are some updates to make. We're doing it in Vegas next year make the changes. We did in Chicago the first time. So is my relationship with Joe developed and I continue to be fortunate enough to have these other wonderful mentors specifically from that CEO community, I was turned on to new resources and new programs and new books and things. And as I dove into that, I came to the two key realizations that you probably saw. The first is that the best leaders and the best interrogators capitalize on the same two core skills vision and influence. And when I saw that, I was like, well, that makes sense because we're having difficult conversations, vulnerable situations. I, I get that. And then as I continued to read, I came across the more surprising of the two. And that one is the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience when they truthfully commit to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that employees experience when they commit to saying, I'll do it, and customers experience when they commit to saying, I'll buy it. And when I saw that, I literally stopped in my tracks and said, new plan. Hmm. I, I love interviewing interrogation. I love the organizations that I work for and that I'm still a part of. And I'm a huge advocate for my former teammates. I just saw one of them last week. Uh, but for me, at that point, the passion was lit to take what we've been doing in the interview room. You'll be surprised what people will do for you when you're nice to them and show them respect and actually pause to consider their role in the world. When we take what we were doing there so well, integrate it with research and best practices from across the world of business communication, there really are new skills, techniques, and perspectives that leaders can apply to all of their conversations. And what those two realizations, which never would have happened without the first conversation with Joe, uh, really is what fired me up to make the switch. So you have hinted at it and this transition from the what started out in, in in discipline listening through interrogation investigation led you through the research and the connection to all of the application for so many human relationship aspects of human relationship and leadership in particular. So to, to put a fine point on it, why is listening a key leadership skill? Because our personal brands as leaders is built on our perception as listeners. One more time. Our personal brand as leaders is built on our perception as listeners. Our personal brand as leaders is built on our perception as listeners. Or how people perceive us as listeners is probably a, a more appropriate way to say it. So our brand is in the perception of the people to whom we are listening and how they perceive how well we're listening. Yes, 100%. That's, a, that's heavy for, I think, for many people. I know it can be for me. Uh, I, I have so many reactions going on right now as I hear that. On the one hand, yes, you're absolutely right. And there's another part of my brain going, gosh, I just can't stand that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. That's what these you conversations know. are for. Uh, and, and, I, and you get at that in so many different ways. And it's why I enjoy, enjoyed the book as much as I did is because uh, I know that 
better listening is something I've been working on cultivating for, for many years of my life. And still to this day, I have conversations I walk away from going, ah, did not listen as well as I needed to uh, in that situation. And you've got some really practical ways to help us do that. So I'd love to dive into some of these and maybe to, to set a little bit of a foundation for you ultimately have a, I think a seven, six or seven, seven steps uh, yes. process in the, in the discipline listening approach. But before that, you, you, you lay some groundwork and you have so many of these pithy little statements that just hit me uh, in so many ways. And you've got listening pitfalls, like the, the danger with saying, you know, I understand. I mean, something that all of us say at some point, oh, I understand what you're saying. Like, that's a problem if we really want to be perceived as a good listener, what's the problem with, I understand. <laughs> so it's not inherently a problem. So some people might be having the same reaction you just said a minute ago. Well, okay, that sounds neat, but wait a minute, there's no problem telling somebody I understand them. So from my back, and I promise I'm going to answer your question in just a second. From my background and my teammates background, we were basically tasked with talking to people who wanted nothing to do with us. The people who were responsible didn't, the, the victims and witnesses, they'd already had enough and didn't want to talk to us. And even often the clients who hired us, they were the hardest interviews for us because they may or may not have had some missteps along the way that they didn't want to share with us that were really critical to understand how we could resolve the situation. So in all of those conversations, it was really predicated not on what do I have to say or do to get what I need, but what do they need to experience before they choose to share the information that I need to achieve my goals? So not what do I need to say, what do they need to experience? And in conversations that have become contentious, they don't have to be knockdown dragouts. It, it could be passive aggressive. It could be someone's taking a position. They're not willing to walk away from it yet. But often when people challenge us, especially if they challenge our understanding of their situation, they don't want to believe that we understand it. They've already made up their mind. They're defending their own position. And demonstrating understanding is one of those nebulous things. Like no matter how I explain to you my understanding of your situation, if you're already engaging with me from a perspective of doubt, it's really easy to nitpick a word choice or something I omitted or something that may have gone two degrees further than what you were thinking. So by me going into depth to try to explain how much I understand, now I run the risk of just adding fuel to your fire because mm. you're probably not listening to me to understand. You're listening to me for anything you can hang on to to prove that I don't understand. To demonstrate that we're not in common, yes. that you don't get me. So if I'm listening, if I'm, if I'm on my side, if I'm listening with that intent, I'm going to be finding any basis for that, as opposed to validating that check for understanding of that reflection that you might offer. Yes. Ooh. Okay. Which is why, and this was something that I was taught early on. There's some, some things that I've come up with along the way, but conceptually something that I was taught. So I don't want to take hundred percent credit for the idea. Literally, if somebody says to me, you don't understand, calmly looking at them, maybe even pausing and saying, you know, you're right. And I'd be grateful if you could please help me understand. Mm -hmm. Or something as simple as, you know, I may not. And that's why this conversation is so important. Mm -hmm. And literally just a statement like that sucks the argument right out of the conversation. It totally validates. 
Yes. So now, now you, you can't fight someone who won't fight. So if someone is trying to escalate the conversation with the tried and true, you don't understand. As soon as I come back with, yes, I do, I've put no, you don't on a T for them. <laughs> but when I come back and say, you know, you might be right, or maybe I don't, or you're right, I don't. Like any one of those statements immediately shocks their system. Well, wait, that wasn't what I was looking for. It comes across as, as humble, self-effacing from us, and then allows us to come back with, that's why this conversation is so important, or I would appreciate if you could help me understand, or any one of those statements after the fact that level sets the conversation. All right. Well, if you're listening, I think we just got our, if nothing else, I know we're going to get a, a bunch more, but boy, that is a practical takeaway in any kind of conversation like that, responding to, I don't understand, to create uh, the, the opportunity to open the door to further dialogue and conversation. Now, Michael, you said something a moment ago, our, our, our focus needs, what do they need to experience in this conversation? And it strikes me that that has so many applications. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for us in terms of, you know, all the conversations that leaders have, and you referenced a, a number of them. I mean, there's the, the leaders with their teams, there's people with in a sales conversation, there's husbands and wives and partners and spouses and significant others and all the different kinds of circumstances. And that focus on what do they need to experience seems pretty powerful. It changed how I communicate once I realized it. And it's a lesson that I learned via interrogation, as crazy as that may sound. For the most part, the conversations that I led throughout my career, and you touched on this earlier, not only did people not have a lot of reason to tell me the truth, they had many, many reasons not to tell me the truth. And some of them are obvious. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to have to pay this back. I don't want to have to give something up. But what we often don't stop to fully consider is the number one fear that stops most people from accepting outside ideas or outside directions or changing their mind. That number one fear is not failure. It's embarrassment. Anytime we're having a conversation with somebody and they feel embarrassed, judged, demeaned, pushed aside, whatever phrase you want to use, we're automatically making this far more difficult for ourselves. And all too often we can do that accidentally. Things we're doing, like saying, I understand, to try to build rapport can actually come across judgmental or assumptive and, and hurt the conversation, hurt the relationship. So thankfully, I had, again, great mentors early on that taught me to sit back and wait a minute. You know, these conversations aren't about you. Yes, we need to be clear on our goals, short and long term. What are we looking to achieve? How can this conversation impact our relationships and objectives? So sure, yeah, to a degree, it's about us. But it's about achieving a goal. And what is unique in interrogation, and I do run into it sometimes, or used to run into it, I don't do much interrogation anymore. Um, in property crimes, we would run into it with business owners and people that would just take it so personal that somebody stole from them or vandalized their place or whatever it is. But we would even run into it more when it was crimes against people, whether that was discrimination, harassment, something violent or, or beyond, is that by the time we would get involved, people would assume that part of our job, for lack of a better, back, lack of better terms, would be like vengeance or reprisal or mm. you know, getting even. But really, our job is to, number one, get the truth, 
And number two, take care of the victim. And in order to do that, we have to demonstrate empathy to the offender. So they will choose not just to say, okay, fine, I did it, but in enough detail that we can turn around and identify additional evidence, hand it over to prosecutors, attorneys, whoever it may be. And so they can solidify their case in order to get the outcome that everybody wants in the end. So even in talking to offenders sitting, which is really the genesis for this, sitting back and realizing this isn't about what I want or what I feel. It's about what this person needs to experience so they can align sharing what I need them to share with their self-image. They can feel okay. They don't feel judged. They don't feel demeaned. They can feel like it's their idea. And once I accepted that, that these conversations were really about what does the other person need to experience, it is, I, it's literally a principle that I apply to every single one of my important conversations in business and personal life is when I build my conversational approach around what they need to experience, the amount of resistance I run into plummets, the amount of information I receive increases drastically. Okay. So continuing with this principle of it's about what they need to experience. How do we know that? Are there common elements that they need to experience? Uh, that are fairly universal. You just touched on one to not sure. feel made less than or embarrassed yes. or, or yes. belittled. Yes. Are there others or then does it contextual? Does it depend on the conversation? Yeah. I would say both. Let's start with, we go out of our way not to embarrass people or make them feel judged. Once we've cleared that hurdle, which is likely the biggest, now there's the universal. You know, people like to feel like they have the opportunity to participate. They like to feel respected. You know, all of these things that, that we already know and accept. There's some cultural differences that we might need to be aware of, communication styles, you know, physical distancing, you know, maybe some gender things that we might have to be aware of depending on where we are in the world. Then after that, it does become contextual based on this person, this situation. So oftentimes when it comes to building the initial strategy, we just think, okay, what are the goals we're trying to achieve? Who do we have to achieve them with? What's the context of the situation we need to achieve that in? So now how do we build the strategy? And I don't want to monopolize the conversation. There are a couple pre-conversation questions we like to ask ourselves. I could share those real quick if you wanted, or I could wait till later on in the conversation. Yeah, have at it. Let's do it. So for me, anytime we're preparing for an important conversation, I don't want to ask myself, why should David say or do what I want David to say or do? Because in that situation, I feel like I'm focusing on your perspective, but really I'm transposing my perspective on you. I'm making some assumptions based on how I see the world. So what I'm going to do is flip the script there. Instead of saying, why should you? I'm going to ask myself, why shouldn't you? If I was David, knowing everything that I know about him, why should he not want to say or do what I want him to say or do? Mm. And because I'm kind of a caveman, I will actually get a pen and paper for people that still use those. And I will write them down, like all of the things that I can think of, all the reasons why David might not want to do this. I'll write them down. And then after that, I'll say to myself, okay, sister question, why hasn't Dave already said or done this? And in reality, there's two shoots that that question could go down. One, he didn't know it was an option. Can't be mad at him for that. (laughs) Or two, he doesn't see the value. Okay, well, if he doesn't see the value, let's break that down. From his perspective, why don't we think he sees the value? Once I have those two questions answered, then I go back to what we were just talking about. I literally look at those two lists and say, okay, with all of this in mind, what does David have to experience before he chooses 
to commit to saying or doing what I need him to say or do. And that can come down to multiple conversations instead of one time, date, location, participants. Maybe I'm not the best person to lead this. I need one of my teammates to come in and lead it for me, put my ego in my back pocket. Maybe there should be some interim commitments. So this is going to be a multi-stage plan over time. Maybe there's previous things you've achieved that I need to make sure I reference or goals that I know you have that I need to make sure I reference. So now I build this communication strategy, not based on what I want to say or do, but based on what I believe you need to experience based on the totality of circumstances. You have got so many elements of this process that, keep coming back to, uh, we, we can put, call it something, uh, call it humility, but you, the phrase you just used, put your ego in your back pocket. And there are so many, as we get into other elements of the book, so many times that you either use that phrase or that it strikes me, that's really necessary because the we're so often leaders are coming at it with, this is my vision. This is the goal. This is what I need to make happen. And the way to achieve those things is not with the ego driven, I got to achieve these things. It's what does this person need to experience? I, there's so much power in that question. So I, we could keep going, but I want to, I'm going to dive into that some other ways. Sure. Sure. L let me uh, read this, just this quote from the book. I just, I found this fascinating. We're still in, by the way, folks, we're still in the early pages of the book. There is so much in here. Most of the time, leaders, parents, investigators, and sales professionals become furious when someone gives them an excuse or explanation that deflects accountability, they feel personally insulted and angry that their counterpart is abdicating responsibility. And then Michael says, on the contrary, you should be happy when people give you an excuse or explanation for why something did or didn't happen. And this ties back into their experience, but everything else. So why unpack that for us? Why should I be happy or interested when people give you an excuse or explanation? Great question. First, to stop some of the eyes that may be rolling, I'm a flag-waving, card-carrying, hill-defending believer in accountability. So this is not about removing accountability from any conversation. This is actually about getting there quicker and easier because generally the direct path is the path of most resistance. So if we make the conversation about holding somebody accountable, they're going to want to defend themselves. So it's really about avoiding that I, I guess, impulse from taking over. So essentially, when if we want somebody to say or do something that is not their idea, this is especially true if we want someone to say or do something that is not their idea and also includes consequences. 85%, and that, that's my number. I honestly might be low. I believe that 85% of the battle is helping them line up whatever you want them to say or do with their self-image. If they can line it up with their self-image, we're in. The greater the separation, we're out. You know, my wife is a genius and a special leader in her own right in so, so many ways. But once upon a time, she literally used van sneakers to help me significantly improve how I dress and present myself in front of audiences. Because she knew how I grew up. I like van sneakers. Who doesn't? They're cool. They always will be. So she literally helped me build a new wardrobe based on sneakers because it helped me line up my self-image with it. So if we're having a conversation with somebody and they give us an excuse, let's just say, they say to us, I did not do that because. What did they just tell us? What matters to them? I didn't do it because, the because? Yeah, both. 
First, they tell us they didn't do it. And that's really what we need. That's the hardest part of the conversation. We wanted them to say, yes, I did it or no, I didn't. That's the that's tantamount to the admission in this conversation or this analogy. That's the hardest part to get. I will make all the listeners a solid promise. If you want somebody to say, I did it or I didn't do it, and it is my fault, I promise it's harder for people the vast majority of time. It's, pro- it's harder for people to say it is my fault than I did it. Mm. And if you want them to say, I did it, it's my fault, and I've lied to you about it, good luck. <laughs> because it's exponentially harder for people to say, I lied about it because of all the moral ties that we have to line. So literally, when people determine, when there's seven stages to these potentially contentious conversations. In the fourth stage for all of us is that internal negotiation. Okay, I've listened to what you said. I think I know where this conversation's going. I have to share information with you, but what should I share and under what conditions is it okay? And often the excuse they give us is the result of that internal negotiation. Okay, I obviously have to tell Dave this, but in order to save face and protect my self-image, I'm going to give them this excuse for it. So they give us that soft admission, if you will, I did or didn't do it. And then they give us the excuse after. The excuse pisses us off so much Mm. that we end up glazing right past the fact that they just told us what we needed to know. And we attack the excuse because we need accountability in our organization. That's right, we do. But in order to help them save face and protect our self-image, if we can realize they just gave us what we need, we now know it either did or didn't happen. Okay, Thank so I didn't, I didn't get the report on time. I didn't get the data accurate. I didn't follow through the customer's request. I didn't do what I had committed to whatever because of X, Y, or Z. So, and we focus on the excuse as opposed to the fact yes. that they actually just owned it. Yes. And so what do we do next to be as I, effective as we can? I would look right at you and say, David, thank you so much. I hadn't considered that. Please, to steal a phrase, unpack it for me. Or the way that I like to say it, please walk me through that. And now we give ourselves two options. Let's just say that their, their excuse has some validity. There was a glitch in the matrix somewhere. They didn't have the support or the resources or the communication or something. We say, walk me through that. We give ourselves the opportunity to learn that there might be something we need to address. That's potentially valuable. Let's say it goes the way we expect. It's just an excuse. When we say, thank you, I hadn't considered that, please walk me through it. Number one, it short circuits the entire argument they prepared themselves for. They literally can exhale. They can drop their defenses because they don't have to battle to keep this excuse. And most people, when they prepare an excuse, they don't prepare it in depth. It's surface level. So when we say, please walk me through it, it falls apart pretty quickly. And as it falls apart, and it's important that we ask these questions with curiosity, you know, not with a tone of accusation or judgment. But now as we say, please walk it through, we listen to their answer and start asking follow-up questions. Now what we're actually doing is coaching their thought process and their decision-making chain. Because this situation is going to happen again, and other similar situations are going to happen again. So now we can coach their decision-making chain, coach their thought process, help pinpoint where some opportunities may have been missed, so we don't end up in this same conversation again. And becomes an opportunity to help guide for the future. Yes. 
You know, you, you, so much of what you're talking about, when we think about what is, what do they need to experience and being aware of what's happening for them in a conversation like this, so that we can choose to be as effective in our communication as possible. Uh, a word that keeps coming up for me is empathy. Yes. And, and you talk about empathy in the book uh, and some of the process you described earlier. It's like, this may not be a 10 minute conversation. This may be 60 minutes. It may be a series of conversations to help people get wherever it is that is going to be most beneficial. And I know many of our listeners, it's been a common theme uh, for the last couple of years. I think it's true for so many leaders is I hear what you're saying, Michael, I want to be empathetic and gosh, time is tight. Time is, is hard to come by and, and empathy takes time. And how do I, how do I navigate that? Do you have any recommendations on how we navigate that challenge of, you know, human centered leadership takes time and time is also seems like increasingly tough to come by. It is. So I guess two quick statements and then we can dive in. Number one, time is the enemy of empathy. When we have that ticking clock in the back of our head, I have to be somewhere else in three minutes. We're literally prioritizing being somewhere else in three minutes over fully engaging in this conversation. My brain is now in a fear-based mentality. I'm afraid I'm not going to be where I'm supposed to be in three minutes. Hmm. So I'm sort of listening to you. I'm picking up on enough to convince myself that I'm listening. But what I'm really doing is focusing on making sure I'm where I need to be in three minutes. Hmm. So prioritizing time over connecting with somebody sets us up to lack the empathy that many of our conversations require. And the other that I'll throw in is, it's especially for so many of the business leaders that listen, we've all been told we have to invest money to make money. Or we also have to invest time to save time. Mm. And even to tie back into that excuse conversation, I might feel like I don't have 10 minutes to unpack this with you. I need you to understand that this is what we expected. This is what happened. And this is what will happen from here forward. But now I'm literally, this conversation isn't about you in that situation. It's about me. It's about my time. It's about what I want to say. It's about what I want to do. It's not based on what you need to learn. Whereas in that same situation, we just workshopped, if you will, if I stop and say, okay, well, David didn't have the report done on time. There are more reports we're going to need in the future. There are more people responsible for doing these reports. So if I take 10 minutes with David now to make sure that we understand exactly what happened and how we can move forward together, hopefully I don't ever have to have this conversation with him again. And as a bonus, he can now become an advocate for this process within the team and can become a resource for me. So now by reframing the conversation from, I only have five minutes, Dave needs to know this is unacceptable and change his behavior to, you know, if I have a great conversation with Dave, my stress level goes down. I don't have to worry about this again with him, hopefully. And in the best case scenario, he's now responsible for teaching, supporting the rest of the team. So part of it is also elevating our mind's eye beyond the short-term tactical emotional to the long-term strategic important. If I focus on the value of a conversation, the value of a relationship, now I'm not wasting time. I'm investing time because the outcome of this relationship is going to have longer legs in a greater impact. And just so we're clear, what you're saying is not 
will just be late to the next obligation. It's how do I recognize the human being in front of me right now in the three minutes I do have, and then have the ensuing conversation in an appropriate way. Yes. And there's even an important trick with that. If you were to come to me and say, Mike, do you have, do you have a minute? I've got a quick question. And I look at my watch and say, David, yes, I've actually got three because I have to be in Brooks office in five minutes. I've literally just told you that you're not worth three minutes of my life. Mm. But if, and I know there's outliers to everything. So what I'm about to say, I guarantee many listeners are going to say, well, I know somebody different. I'm sure Um, the majority of time, if somebody comes to you with a question, it's going to take less than three to five minutes for them to explain it to you. The vast majority of times it might feel like a lifetime in our brain, because we've dealt with this before. We have our preconceived notions. We have someplace else we want to be. But if you had a stopwatch, it's probably under three to five minutes. So now if you come to me and say, hey, Mike, I've got a quick question. Do you have a minute? And I say, yes. How can I help? And I just let you explain to me the issue. It's probably going to take less than three minutes, at which point I can now say, David, thank you very much for bringing that to me. I want to make sure that I don't undersell the time that we have together to workshop on this. I do have to be to Brooks office in about a minute and a half. I should be done by four. Are you going to be in your office at four? I'd be happy to stop by your office. And if you've got the time in the next hour or so, if you could just note out the goals you're trying to achieve, what you've already tried and why it hasn't worked for you, we can start there. Mm. Now, I, by not saying I've only got three minutes up front, you feel valued. You feel listened to. You don't feel rushed. I'm, I'm arriving at the same outcome with the bonus of now because how I answered the question, there's an increased likelihood. And I'm not saying it's a certainty by any stretch, but there's an increased likelihood that you might just solve this problem on your own before I get back. Absolutely. Definite. There is a possibility that we have increased the odds of that happening. Yes. <laughs> also, we've going back to their experience because they feel heard and seen. Now that emotional intensity is less for them. So they do have more cognitive weight to bring to the actual problem. So it is possible. And even if they don't solve it themselves, we've, you, you've laid some good groundwork for a more productive conversation when you get there. 100%. Hopefully they're further down the road as opposed to sitting there waiting for a Hail Mary. Powerful, powerful. Another practical technique. We are talking with Michael Reddington, the author of The Disciplined Listening Method, how a certified forensic interviewer unlocks hidden value in every conversation. And I'm watching the clock. I hate to say like, you know, we're just talking about uh, in the prior segment here about uh, watching the clock and when you got to go and because I do not want to end this conversation. I'm learning so much. So I'm going to go to, uh, I think a principle here that was one that hit me square between the eyes, which is that you say no one can have anything more important to say to us than when we have than what we have to say to ourselves. Our internal monologue wins every time, which on the surface of it, Michael, makes total sense to me. And what do I do with that? Great question. So when we just to unpack that a little bit, we are we our voice in our head runs four times faster than our ability to speak out loud. So it can take us to different places simultaneously. If I'm having a conversation with you and my internal monologue gets off and running, let's assume I'm not just thinking about something entirely unrelated. Like I've checked out and I'm thinking about my son's t-ball game tonight or the next meeting that I have. 
and let's assume that I'm even engaged with you. My internal monologue starts running away. I'm probably focused on how you're making me feel, how this conversation lines up with my previous expectations, any opportunities to defend what I think or feel, what I want to say next, <laughs> the time, some of these things we've talked about. As I'm focusing on all of that, I'm generating emotions that are driving what I'm, what I'm telling myself and what I'm likely to say out loud. I'm also hearing just a portion of what you're saying because we can't multitask. It's why we shouldn't text and drive. So we literally can't fully focus, put 100% of our cognitive effort on two things at one time. So if I've got, and I'm going to make these statistics up, I don't have the scientific research, but if I've got 65, 70, 75% of my cognitive function focusing on what I'm thinking and feeling, especially if I'm generating strong emotions, I'm hearing enough of what you're saying to trick me into believing that I'm listening to you, hmm. but I'm missing word choice. I'm missing intonation. I might be missing uh, nonverbal behaviors or even changes in your volume, tone, speed of delivery, pauses, things that could be laden with intelligence. If I'm lost in my own internal monologue, at best, I'm listening for information. I'm probably listening for you to say or do something that confirms where I'm at right now and gives me the opportunity to jump in and pontificate about wherever my brain is. But if I'm listening for intelligence, now I'm forcing myself to maintain the learning mentality. Where are these unexpected avenues to value creation? And if I'm lost in how I think or feel, it's going to be nearly impossible to pick up on those. So if that internal monologue, whatever the numbers are, as you just described it, create that challenge for us. Do you have any suggestions on how we can, when we find that happening, maybe quiet that down and get us back focused on yes. the conversation, the person in front of us, yes. where to go next? And speaking of listening, thank you for asking me that twice, because you asked that at the end of the last question and I didn't address it. So thank you, thank you for bringing it back up. Um, number one, comes with trying to catch it. When I catch my internal monologue flying off, because it happens to all of us, it's naturally what our brains are wired to do, literally realizing it and saying, okay, I've got to bring it back in. So one of the is just cognitively realizing I'm talking to myself right now, I've zoned out, I've got to come back. The way a, a, a trigger that I use to try to make that process happen faster for myself is to pay attention to the physiological indications I experience that tell me my emotions are changing. So often, our, not always, but often our internal monologue is tied to our emotions. For most of us, I'm assuming that when our emotions change, there is a physiological indicator that should tell us our emotions are changing before our brain actually realizes it. So for me, as silly as this sounds, I will often curl my toes in my shoes. Now, anybody looking at me wouldn't see it, but I can feel it. So literally for me, when I feel my toes start curling in my shoes, that's enough for me to say, stop listening. Mm. Because now I know I'm getting myself off track. I'm getting upset. I'm getting emotional. If my hands are in my pockets, maybe I'm making a fist, rubbing my fingers together, for me, maybe my jaw clenches a little bit. If I feel my jaw muscles starting to get tight, maybe my heart races a little bit or I start breathing heavy. Or, you know, but feeling these physiological indicators that tell us we're experiencing emotional shift, 
is a quicker avenue to discovering our emotions are changing than trusting our brain to figure it out. So if I can catch it at the physiological level, I can make the adjustment and refocus quicker. And that's one example of developing our awareness of ourselves as listeners. And you have many different avenues of, of that process and the recommendation that we all start there and let's cultivate our own awareness of how we listen. So uh, I want to encourage you to listeners get this book. There is so much value in here. We are scratching the surface, just getting a, a taste here. And we're going to get a little bit more. But before we do, Michael, can you tell us uh, where we can connect with you, learn more about you, find the book? Uh, again, the name of the book is The Disciplined Listening Method. Go ahead, Michael. I appreciate your asking. Thank you. So my company's website is inquasive.com, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. That's where anyone can learn more about the training programs and advisory sessions that we offer. My website is michaelreddington.com, and that's where they can learn more about myself personally and, and read some of the media that I've had published. And the website for the book is disciplinedlistening.com. So there's a, a sample chapter there and lots they can learn about the book there. The, really, the only social media I'm currently on is LinkedIn, Michael Reddington CFI. And the book is available online, both at Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles. And I encourage you to go and get this book. I have learned so much. This, th you know, I, I read a lot of books for this show, Michael, and this is one of those I need, I know I have to read again and really soak in and, and, and draw out. And I'm, I'm using some of our conversation to augment my own learning, which is why I asked that question twice, because I figured sure. you had a good answer. <laughs> Thank um, you. You know, for listeners, if you enjoy a book that is based in the, the research is fundamental and it's there, it's, it's very clear, but so many good stories too. You've got stories of tense cab rides in the Middle East and, <laughs> and how those resolved and into a, a, well, I don't want to spoil what, how that resolution went, but you've got various investigations. And then you've got a story that I thought for me just tied all of this together when we're talking about putting our ego in our back pocket and the experience of the other person and, and recognizing that. And this was when you needed to get some carpet installed. <laughs> I just yes. loved this story. I, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just sharing that. It's towards the end of the book. Sure. So it is a, a kind of a, a great way to, to encapsulate some of these principles. Sure. So long story short-ish, when my wife and I moved into our current house, we knew that eventually we'd have to replace the upstairs carpet. Uh, when we were pregnant with our first child, we were motivated to replace the carpet upstairs. I don't know a whole lot about replacing carpet, but I do know that people who make money based on jobs may or may not be motivated to maximize their profit margin on said job. So for me, just trying to get what us investigation nerds like to call ground truth, I wanted to find some information that I knew to be incontrovertible and give me a baseline to participate and then validate the conversation. So the day before the guy was scheduled to come measure, I got my tape measure out and got down on my hands and knees and I measured all the nooks and crannies and I punched it in the calculator and figured out within a couple of feet what the square footage of my upstairs was, second floor of the house. Once I know that, now that gives me something I can keep to myself in order to test the honesty, the trustworthiness of the person I'm having a conversation with. So he comes in with a tablet. I don't want to endorse any specific product accidentally. Uh, and with said tablet, he laser measures the entire second story in my house, which has kind of a unique floor plan. It's an open floor plan. And then he literally shows it to me. Is this what the floor looks like to you? And it does, like an architect's drawing. It's perfect. Shows the, the doors and everything. And I said, yes, it does. 
And then he starts telling me how much square footage I'm going to need in carpet. Now, I understand there's going to be some overage, but he's literally telling me I need about double. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not probably not true. But if I say to him, that doesn't make sense because I know I have X amount of square feet, I give away the strategic advantage in the conversation. I make it really easy for him to explain away what he told me. And now I've lost the power of my knowledge because I applied it incorrectly. So I let him go through his whole thing. When I was done, I thanked him for explaining it to me. First time going through the process. And then I just asked him out of curiosity, what's the total square footage of my floor? And he literally like bites his lips and shuffles his feet and looks away. And then, ah, this machine doesn't actually tell me that. (laughs) You just laser measured it, dude. (laughs) So again, the temptation would be to jump on him there. But if I jump on him there, I lose the strategic initiative. Because number one, there's a chance that maybe it doesn't. I don't believe that. But there's a chance that maybe it doesn't. And number two, if I force somebody to defend himself, if I call him a liar, either outright or in so many words, he's going to defend himself. The situation is going to devolve. So I'm patient. I've got other people coming to look. I know I'm going to get the results anyway. So I get a phone call a couple of days later. I go down to the store. The guy at the store says, OK, your results are in. He opens the folder. He tells me everything that the, the guy who came to measure did. I said, thank you very much. I've just got one quick question. What's that? Can you please verify for me the square footage of the second floor of my house? I was two feet off. He literally flips it open and says, it's right here. And I looked at it and I said, well, thank you. That's all I need to know and started walking away. And at that point, he said, well, wait, where are you going? So I turned around, explained to him what happened and explained that I didn't feel comfortable working with a company who sends somebody in my house to be dishonest with me at the start of the process. As most people with a customer service background can likely anticipate, that conversation grew legs. That organization ended up installing the carpet for us, and there were a handful of incentives that I picked up along the way because of it. So when I share that story, I don't want to say that, you know, I, I, it wasn't about catching somebody in a lie. It was about giving him every opportunity to tell me the truth. If he literally looked at his iPad and gave me the number, none of this happens. But because he chose not to give me the number, he opened up an opportunity for me to engage with his organization from a different angle that then created favorable financial incentives at the end of the conversation. So it's not about tricking. It's not about trapping. It literally was about, I know the truth. Let me verify it. Ooh, that was a simple test. You failed. So now because you chose not to share the truth with me, I have these other avenues to pursue keeping in mind the experience of the other person on the other end of that conversation the whole time. Yes. Not, no need to offend them, put them on the defensive, belittle, embarrass. All of that would have resulted in a poor outcome for me. Wow. That's such a, a powerful example. Again, that principle of time that, that we were talking about earlier and the investment there, the, the uh, looking at those lies and looking for the the reasons and the the opportunities that are in that conversation and the other person's experience. So many good principles. Michael, you've got a seven step, seven core behaviors that disciplined listeners engage with. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, just a few minutes left. I wonder if, and it may not be one of those seven, it may be something else, but as people are listening going, wow, yes, I want to be a disciplined listener if they have to start somewhere, if you had one suggestion on where to get going with this, what would that be for us? May I make two? 
Absolutely. The first one is be uh, the first one is, and it's number six, always encourage your counterparts to protect their self-image. And that's been a theme of everything that we've talked about. What do you need to experience? Allow you to protect your self-image. I don't want you to feel judged. I don't want you to feel dumb. I don't want you to feel on the defensive. So I want to protect your self-image the entire time. So that's one overarching. The other, and especially for leaders, and we talk about focusing on time, let the conversation come to you. If we're not learning, we're not listening. The more you talk to me, the more I learn. The more I learn, the more I can ask more powerful questions, obtain more critical information, make better decisions, achieve better results. So let the conversation come to you. Listen to what people have to say. Realize that we typically start talking before we fully thought out everything we're going to say. So as our brain is catching up to our mouth, it's likely the real valuable stuff is going to come at the end. So instead of valuing our time or valuing winning the conversation or valuing getting the last word, you know, don't suffer death by last word. Um, let the conversation come to you. Give people enough time or rope as you can. Let them expand on their thoughts, learn, allow them to protect their self-image and listen for the intelligence that leads to the hidden value. I love it. I think we got like five there. That was powerful. <laughs> so we've got encourage our counterparts to always protect their self-image allow the conversation to come to us, uh, the power of asking those questions as we're listening to, to really invest in the good questions. Wow, this has been an incredible conversation. I know that uh, as I can implement these, as our listeners can implement some of these principles that it will help us to be the leader that we'd want our boss to be. And so, Michael, I really appreciate you taking your time to, to be a guest here on the show. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. And uh, we may have to have a follow-up at some point. This was powerful. Thank you. I would love to. And thank you. I appreciate your invitation. You know, thank you for pulling so much out of the book for us to talk about. I appreciate the time and preparation you put into the conversation. But I've thoroughly enjoyed it and will come back any day. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that's another episode of Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Uh, be the leader you want your boss to be, and we will see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.